atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? I'm kind of like a Chinese rocket, Mike, uh, with uh, but with twice the speed and half the direction. <laughs> oh God! Okay, well that should be interesting. Well, thankfully, uh, you you will be uh, not not have to carry uh, carry me all on your own because we have a special guest, actually a returning special guest, uh, Olivia, who, as many of you may remember, was back with us on the show in. February, I believe it was. And there was just a, a lot of positive response to having, I don't know, Jay, maybe a voice that wasn't some, you know, middle-aged ish guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Olivia, we are really happy to have you back on the show today. Thanks. I'm super excited to be back. I should also mention that speaking of people who are going to be coming back who aren't us, uh, it looks like Kristen will be coming back to the show soon. Uh, regular listeners may know that she had to take a short hiatus to work on uh, another project she had an opportunity to do, and that has wrapped up, and we're shooting for having our first uh, Kristen and Mike show in quite a while on, uh, I think, May 22nd, so just a couple weeks from now, and we will we will be happy to have Kristen back. I know I missed her. I know not a lot of listeners have, and so we are uh, we are all looking forward to having Kristen back. But before we get started today, I want to just thank our newest supporters on Patreon. We have Johan, we have Martin, who actually is a current supporter who doubled his level of support for the show, and Jordan D., another longtime supporter who, again, doubled, I think more than doubled his previous wow. level of support. Yeah. And uh, and finally, Ryan. You sure want Kristen back? What's <laughs> <laughs> just think how we do with her actually yeah, all right, yeah, without yeah. her you know so uh, but anyway and then there's ryan who's been listening for years and he said he became a patreon supporter and also gave us an extremely generous donation through venmo at the same time for in his words to make up for all the time that he's been listening which uh oh, which wow. was thank really, you yeah. guys yeah and ryan also wrote in to say he's constantly finding myself in agreement with sides of issues i never thought i would have engaged in you're building empathy and understanding in a time where these are hard to come by thanks again for all your work also tell ken to get his discord ready and uh, so <laughs> i will have more on that actually next week because that's sort of the thing that you know trey and, and ken uh put together and actually a number of people responded very well to the get ken on discord thing but i will let trey talk about that when he and ken do the show next week but uh, that that looks like that is actually a thing also, uh, Martin wrote in to say, I wanted to do my part since I found your podcast increasingly important in our polarized environment. Please give my regards to the defender of freedom and tell him to Thank you. keep up the good work of challenging my progressive views and adding perspective. So there you go. It's always nice to have a little shout out for Jay in particular, because Jay, I know sometimes you get you bear the brunt. I do get a lot of grief sometimes. But yeah, from, you know, yeah. deservedly so, I would say. But, but well, anyway. It comes with the territory. Yeah, there you, there you go. Um, You know, it's not easy being a defender of freedom. Anyway. Like it is not. It is not. So as a Patreon supporter, you also, you get that second 
full-length show every week. You also get ad-free versions of all our shows. There's other stuff at other levels of support. To check it out, just go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. And as always, if you would like that bonus show, but you're just not in a position to financially support the podcast, totally understandable. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up with that. All right. Uh, so let's start today's show with uh, a new voting law in Florida. On Thursday, in a special exclusive appearance on Fox and Friends, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a number of new voting restrictions. And aside from Fox, I mentioned all other media were barred from the event uh, in which uh, DeSantis signed the measure and talked about some of the main provisions. And basically, his view was that this will help to increase public faith in elections, though most Democrats see it as yet another Republican-controlled state pushing through measures to, well, suppress largely Democratic votes. And some of the key details of what this uh, what this Florida law uh, in, entails, it requires that ballot drop boxes be supervised and only available when elections offices and early voting sites are open. It limits ballots that can be collected for submission to immediate family and no more than two unrelated people. It prohibits unsolicited mailing of ballots. It allows Democratic and Republican representatives access to observe signature matching reviews by the canvassing board. It requires that voters who are changing their registration information, like moving to a new address, that sort of thing, to provide an ID number, such as a, like a driver's license, partial social security number, as opposed to the previous, the current, well, I guess the previous method now, which basically they just informed, uh, they just informed through a mail, I think, or some other uh, method of their new address. And also it gives every county access to live voter turnout data, which is updated hourly beginning at 7 p.m. on Election Day by the supervisor of elections. And that includes the number of mail ballots that have been received and the number of ballots that remain uncounted. Now, the law was immediately challenged in federal court by multiple groups who argue that it creates an unconstitutional barrier to voting for some groups. And as I said, this is the latest in a number of voting restrictions from Republican-controlled states, most notably Georgia, of course, in March. And Texas looks to be next in line to pass more restrictive voting laws. And finally, before we get into our discussion, I should point out that all of this is possible due to the Supreme Court invalidating the pre-clearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder. And since then... That was, that was, couple, that was a couple years ago. Yeah, the, but yeah. that's why all this is possible, is what I'm right. saying. And then since then... Republican legislatures in areas that were formerly covered by these restrictions, and it was largely kind of the Old South, but there are some other states as well, uh, they have passed a number of these more restrictive laws. And I think it's fair to say that these efforts have gained a fair amount of momentum in the wake of the 2020 election, former President Trump's lies about the process and the results and lies that, of course, culminated in that January 6th overrunning of the Capitol by Trump supporters. So that's kind of where we are right now. And, and I guess I'll just uh, kick things off by saying, uh, asking, what do you think about this law? And why don't we why don't we start with our special guest, Olivia? Yeah, I um, it's. I just think it's another, I guess, um, confirmation of like the big lie. And it's, you know, 
unfortunately validating, you know, so much of the country's um, belief that the election was stolen because, you know, had the election not been stolen or had the election been secure, the average person would think there wouldn't be a need to change all of these voting laws. Um, and on top of that, DeSantis and Abbott both um, had said they had boasted about how the elections in their states were um, extremely secure and that they were, you know, some of the um, the most secure elections of all time. And then now they're, you know, due to Trump pushing that, you know, there was so much fraud in the 2020 election. Um, and also the fact that with the historically um, high voter turnout that we saw in the election and the fact that that um, in turn resulted in a Democratic win rather than Trump's, um, I just think, you know, number one, these laws are um, unnecessary, but they're being pushed both to support this idea that the election was stolen, which we know was not. Um, but number two, because Republicans feel that um, their best shot at winning is by suppressing Democratic votes rather than um, gaining Republican votes, which is um, disturbing. And Jay, what do, what do you think about that? Well, I, I would first ask by what exactly uh, is, are, are people finding restrictive uh, about this or what? where is the vote suppression? I guess that's when we're talking about you're not having the state send out unrequested ballots um how is that voter suppression well that seems to be common sense right that the state just shouldn't send out ballots to addresses uh where they don't know who lives there if anyone lives there uh secondly with the drop boxes um again drop boxes are something new uh it was something sort of uh sui generis to the, the pandemic uh and the the requirement that you're going to have them monitored is is somehow restrictive? Well, well, no. That's protecting uh, vote security. Um, likewise, I, I I just the the collection of votes uh, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's ballot harvesting. Uh, I think you you could you could see where there could be a whole lot of mischief uh, that occur that could occur if you allow uh, ballot harvesting, which is allowing someone just to go around a, a third party, just to go around, collect ballots from people and then take them or not take them uh, to the uh, the Board of Elections. So if you're limiting that to uh, uh, family members, that seems to be a sensible restriction. Uh, again, I, I don't see what I don't see how this restricts people from voting. Uh, I don't see how um, uh, the it, it particularly you know the idea that this somehow uh, uh, prevents minorities from voting. Um, so I, I guess that's that I'm I'm at a loss, and I think this is is more of the same which we saw with Georgia, where where there was actually expansions of voting opportunities, um, but in this sort of Orwellian um, uh, view, the the news media and the Democratic Party have have uh, uh, claimed no, it's you know Jim Crow all over again. Um, so I that's. I, I just again, I'd, I'd ask you what what are the restrictions that you see, and how do, how does this actually suppress votes? Well, I, uh, because I, I don't think it know, does. I, oh, well, one, oh, one more thing. Sure. Um, while I'm at it, uh, no, the other piece, and this is to to Olivia's point. Um, look, Trump uh, caused a whole lot of damage to our country with his. Uh, uh, you know, the big lie about I won and I won by a lot, and the election was stolen. And she's absolutely right about that. But I think the remedy uh, to that is 
to have elections that are secure. People can uh, certainly say, well, listen, I've got some concerns and, and I don't believe that the election was stolen. Uh, but do I believe the Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Court changed the rules halfway through? Yes. Uh, do I believe there are irregularities uh, in some of these places? Absolutely. And there typically, there typically are. Um, so I think the, the best way to, to dispute the, the Trump, the election was stolen argument is to to uh, put in place laws that allow things like like transparency and prevent the the you know things like ballot harvesting like uh, just drop boxes uh, and have signature requirements and these these are things that are basic um, uh, parts of, of voting that have, have look been in effect for for forever uh, and they have never been uh, unconstitutional before uh yet now uh that's that seems to be the issue that democrats want to push so well number one i i'd say there's probably about eight eight different elements of your response that <laughs> you're asking me to respond to let me see if i can get them all straight but number one yeah, for, I would, first thing yeah what's 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 so restrictive about well number one you mentioned a number of a number of elements of the law that aren't necessarily that restrictive. But I don't think that anyone is saying, or certainly I don't think it's reasonable to say that every little part of it is restrictive. I will say that unlike in the Georgia law, which expanded voting in some ways, that looks like it would probably be to the benefit of rural Republican voters by some strange coincidence, that I don't, I'm not aware of any expansions in this Florida law for anyone. But you know, you you point out some things that aren't necessarily restrictive, and I absolutely will agree that the law, every bit of it, is not restrictive, but there are things that make it more difficult. Now, you may argue that they're justified, but things like, for instance, making it more difficult to change your registration, requiring more information, or for instance, uh, uh, the I didn't mention this in one of the highlights, but in addition to the uh, not soliciting or not sending unsolicited ballots, it's also not as automatic of a process. If you, you have to request new ballot, I think for every election, I think it has been every two, I believe it was, if you wanted to do that. And so there are a, a bunch of small steps. It, it seems to me in my basic, in my first pass comparison. Beyond Bull Connor's wildest dreams. Well, you know, and, and so, yeah, it's not Jim Crow 2.0, but it certainly does. I mean, the whole point, though, it seems to me the whole Republican argument is, well, we need to, we need to make voting more secure. Now, there's no way to make almost anything more secure without putting more barriers up. That's kind of build a wall, you know, around voting sure. to make it more secure, basically. Well, and if you do that, it's fairly, fairly clear that the people who are going to be most disadvantaged are people who, generally speaking, tend to be Democratic voters. Now, maybe that's just a happy coincidence for Republicans, but, you know, the to say that this is just some sort of high-handed uh, concern for uh, election security, especially in a state like Florida, which both sides heralded as a, a model of how elections should be run, this is—I I, I won't say it's a solution or a solution in search of a problem, because the problem, I think, as Olivia pointed out, is that there are just you know too many Democrats who might be voting, and if we can make it harder for them to do that, and you know wrap ourselves in the mantle of election security. Security. Well, that sounds like a fine idea. See, well, I, I think I think you're reading I think you're reading motives in there where where there aren't because I, I'm not sure that. Look, I, I think it's more, um, and, and I'll you know, listen. If I'm being completely you know frank on this, 
I could see the argument that this is an appeal to the Republican base. Um, I, I am, I am less uh, uh, sanguine, less convinced about the argument that this actually would prevent more Democrats from voting. Um, simply because, again, Florida, you know, Florida has uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, you know, kind of no no fault absentee. All you got to do is request. Uh, you do have to request your mail-in ballot 10 days before the election. Uh, some folks may think that's a restriction, but that seems to be not too much um, to me. Um, uh, again, this is this is broadly um, more um, uh, more more easy to vote, right? Than than it was in the the Clinton administration or even the Obama administration. Um, and I, I think uh, you mean in terms of the expansion of mail-in voting in Florida. Yeah, in terms of places. in terms of mail-in votes, in terms of uh, early voting, in terms of you know walk-in uh, voting. Uh, now, in terms of drop boxes, um, none of those things were were present in uh, you know a million years ago in two thousand eight uh, when we elected uh, the first black president, uh, or in in um, uh, two thousand twelve when we elected him again. Uh, so I. I Again, I I think this is there. There is a lot of um, oh gosh. Again, I've got the uh, Chinese rocket thing where I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> well, you know, I, I, but but no, a lot a lot of um, demagoguery going on around this that I think is is one. It's it's untrue and also it's unhealthy. Well, what do you think about that, Olivia? Do you, do you buy at least in part Jay's contention that you know that this is not that big of a deal? What's what's your reaction to that? So honestly, when I was reading um, all about like, you know, like I was reading CNN's fact check on, you know, exactly what the bill or what the law is um, changing about voting. And I wasn't I do feel like this this these new changes are less um, I guess they they're less um, restrictive than some other states new voting laws have been. Um, And, you know, I think. I wouldn't say that they're that um, that you know as difficult to like overcome if you want to vote as some of the other laws have been, but they do make it harder to vote. Um, and I guess you know my question is why why would DeSantis and Abbott be saying that you know if the election was so secure in 2020, and if um, DeSantis is saying that Florida was like a model state, um, then why do we need to make voting harder? Um, unless it's because ultimately a Democratic president won. And, you know, well, I, 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 Mike, if, if I can answer that. Yeah. Um, no, I jump in with, with kind of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with my, my uh, bank robbery analogy. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, that one. Well, and I, I think it's still, I think it's still valid, right? Um, you can say, look, uh, we're really proud of our bank's security. Uh, uh, we're, we're proud that we haven't been robbed in, you know, forever. Uh, and we think do a great job, but you know what? We're going to do even a better job. Um, how how often? Let's let's put this way. How often do you receive notices from uh, someone you do business with online, your credit card company, or, or some online merchant that says, "Hey, now we're enhancing our security. We're doing even more, so you can you can shop with more confidence." Um, I I don't think that's it's I don't think it's it's uh, contradictory to say we have a great record on security. And at the same time, say, yet we're going to keep improving and do better. Um, 
And, and I, I just, you know, kick but there are it two to, sides, to Jay, that, that analogy, the problem with the analogy is I think I mentioned the last time is it's an incomplete analogy because you can't just look at security in a vacuum because the most secure election would be one where our armed guards, you know, uh, escorted every individual voter and, you know, did a, some sort of a biometric sure, sure, sure. scan. And so there is a balance here. And I think what people on the right oftentimes aren't willing to consider is what you inevitably give up when you get more security for whatever for whatever reasons. And we I mean, we know that elections, for the most part, especially in a state like Florida, are extremely well run. President Trump's own administration, now he denied it, said that, you know, this was one of the most secure election in history. And yet. In the wake of that, saying, well, we can do better in the wake of the most secure election in history. OK, yeah. no, absolutely. Because here's the thing. They've, they've said this is the most secure election in history. Um, but there are still a lot of people who don't believe it uh, or they don't believe that the next election might be as secure. And, and because of things like like ballot harvesting, because of things like drop boxes. Uh, yeah, but, you know, like that, not, that reminds me to... of Ben Sass's argument where you say it were essentially uh, this came after the after the January 6th Trump supporters you know, taking the Capitol uh, and, and that he said, you know, the argument is ridiculous is what you end up doing is say, well, let's, let's raise a lot of doubts and let's support a president who raises fundamental doubts about the security of our elections and then say, well, I guess we're going to have to tighten security because a lot of people are concerned about the security of our elections. I mean, it's a, it's a, well, yeah, it's a no, fundamentally that's, that's dishonest argument. Because, because look, as we've, we've seen, there is legitimacy is, is, is one of the cornerstone of, of, uh, of our democracy, of our, of our governance, right? Um, if we don't believe in the result, rightly or wrongly, uh, that the result is legitimate, that's a problem. Um, and, and I think that the steps that we're talking about here are ones that uh, do address legitimate concerns. Um, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. Let me, let me kick it to you guys. Can, can you make the argument for ballot harvesting? I mean, Why do we need it? Well, I mean, I think the term is it's sort of a derogatory term. And so okay. I would, I well, would let's, suggest let's call, it, a, let's call it, uh, I don't know, whatever term you want. Vote, vote collection. Ballot vote collection, collection assistance. Sure. I think you can, make, you can make the case for ballot collection uh, or voter collection assistance, whatever you want to call it, based on the idea that there are some voters who, for various reasons, have difficulty getting out of their houses. And so this is a, you know, this is a convenience. Right. Do any of them have postal service, too? Because, you know, you can always mail it. Yeah. And, and, and again, there are some people who may be housebound who don't want to just leave a ballot in the mailbox, that sort of thing. I mean, you can I, hand it to your mailman. If you happen to be around when your mailman, I, I, it seems to me that with so many of these things, it seems to me, Jay, with so many of these things, you basically assume that voting is so easy and so convenient because you are a you are a well-off white guy doing you know doing just fine for yourself. You're living in a different world from a lot of people who are voters or potential voters. And so when you say it's so easy, I always think, yeah, for you, sure. But most people are not like you, and that's an anyway, that's that's my perspective. Olivia, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I would have said all of the same things that you said, but I also just. I guess my question is, so if this election was so secure, we still have, you know, 
a good portion of the country not believing that. And so I like the argument that, you know, we need to make voting harder. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, entirely ridiculous, all of these laws. Like I understand the merit behind some of them, but like that we need to make voting harder so that the portion of Americans who incorrectly believe that this election was not secure so that they have more faith in the election process. They're already not believing the truth. So then, you know, in the next election cycle, when all these laws are, you know, um, being implemented and what if they still don't like the result and there's another, you know, big lie that the election was stolen. I mean, I don't know. This election was claimed to be secure and they still don't believe it. So I don't know how making voting harder. I mean, I I don't think it's that far fetched to think that they're still going to reject the results if they don't like them in the future. So I just think I don't think it's a, a, a good excuse to make voting harder on certain people just to kind of appease uh, a portion of the country that is refusing to believe the result of the election or um, believing this big lie that it wasn't secure because they'll still believe that in the future if they don't like the results. You know, I, I, I'd like, well, yes and no, but I think it's, I think it's a tougher, it's, it's tougher because then the argument is, well, look, what is it? How, how do you think that the election was stolen? How is well, it possibly tougher, Jay, when we're talking about Hugo Chavez's ghost coming up and influencing election system, these bullface lies that mil- tens of millions of people are believing? You're, you're actually making it. That's a, again, you live in a rationality based world. And I, that's, I think what makes you, you know, in part a good person and a reasonable person. But again, you seem to think that other people live in this same world and they just don't. And those fears, those irrational fears that tens of millions of people have are being manipulated by awful politicians. Yeah, no, no, no. And and I agree. And this is, to me, this is a a good way to stop that manipulation (laughs) because, because you can't know, look, if you're saying, um, Hey, the, the, uh, this was stolen because you know what? There were unsupervised drop boxes and somebody just went and stuffed the ballot box. Um, uh, but that's, that's to Olivia's point. There can be the pushback and say, no, you know what? All of these drop boxes were supervised. They were at, uh, official board of elections locations. They weren't just, uh, you know, out, out somewhere where, uh, where someone could, could either, um, add votes or or take them away i mean uh you know blow the thing up i'm, I'm just amazed at how naive you are right now and this is not a sentence that i thought ever would come out of my mouth uh, regarding you but that is so incredibly naive it's almost touching in a way the faith you seem to have in the ability of rational arguments to convince people of things and i i just don't know how you get to there from here given the fact that People are patently willing to say the most outrageous things that are completely divorced from reality, and tens of millions of people are willing to believe it. And to think that saying, well, you know, we've we fixed the ballot harvesting potential issues, so certainly nobody will have any issues with the election now. It goes back to what Olivia said, and I agree entirely. They'll just find another reason to say that the election was fixed so long as their preferred candidate doesn't win. And that's Oh, I mean, no, absolutely. But but that argument gets harder and harder and no, harder yeah, and no, harder to sell, right? No, it doesn't. That, that argument has to get goofier and goofier. <laughs> right? It's already pretty goofy. There you I go. Exactly. <laughs> Here's the thing. But the, the argument that um, I, I that that things like uh, ballot or or signature checking, right? I, I mean, um, 
when when I talk to Republicans and and they say, well, you know, can you can you believe that? Um, or 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 look, uh, observers of both parties being allowed, uh, you know, to observe. It doesn't doesn't that if you if you were to say like well you know a board of elections can have only one party doing the observation, um, well sure wouldn't that wouldn't that strike you as is something like you might scratch your head and be well, let's say it's a, a very Republican county and they say we're not going to allow any Democratic observers within uh, they have to be stay twenty feet away or thirty feet away or whatever and again I'll I'll concede which which you already have that that I think a lot of this. Uh, is is more just to reassure the Republican base than that it's actually doing a whole lot. Because one, I don't think it does a whole lot to to prevent uh, people from voting. Uh, I think the security it fixes. Uh, I think it's it's important. But in in most part, especially in Florida, these issues didn't seem to be occurring. There were more you know California things, but it's more to assure Floridians that uh, look, we're not going to turn into California. Um, so I I. I you know, I'll, I'll, I'll concede that, that it's, it's political. Um, but okay. well, to, you know, I, I still just don't see how, how, how these, these are, are, are bad reforms, uh, or, or somehow well, I don't, I don't think that discriminatory. I, well, I, again, I, I think you're, well, we won't go back over that. Well, what, I, no, I, I wanted one, one more thing. Cause yeah, you guys are ganging up on me. Um, oh, please. As, you, you've, you've had, you've had <laughs> more floor time than both of us combined well, at this point, Dave. So I don't think that we're ganging holding, up. Holding exactly. my own. Um, but in terms of, 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 listen, am I, am I special and, and, uh, uh, gifted and look, I know how to vote because I'm a rich white man. Um, look, I've been voting since I was 18 years old and I, I, I suppose I always was white, but I, I certainly wasn't well off. I certainly wasn't always well educated. And and you know what? I've worked on plenty of campaigns and there are a whole lot of people out there um, who are not particularly well off, who may not particularly well educated, uh, who are of, of different races and ethnicities. Um, and they've been voting for years, for decades. Um, I, you know, part of my job and again, I haven't done this part of the job for a while yet, but, um, you know, you deal with juries. A jury pool is taken from voter registration. Uh, you see a very diverse group of people come in in juries and they're, they are of, of all walks of life, um, uh, young, old, black, white, um, rich, poor. And I would say they lean toward the, uh, uh, you know, in, in Cuyahoga County um, uh, to be more minorities, uh, more poor, uh, you know, that, that get pulled in. So it's what I'm saying is, is people have been registering and people have been voting forever uh under much more restrictive systems um and and i just don't see that that this is a restriction and and these people as uh, as much as credit as you give me mike uh for being smart enough and white enough to figure out how to vote um i i think it's it's just not that hard i mean i you know i, I think a lot most everyone uh can meet these these very minimal uh requirements well again i think uh, you're you're sort of twisting what I'm saying. Certainly, I'm not suggesting that uh, that non-white people are worse voters than white people. And I think some people might have taken that implication away. No, from no, what no. You and that's, said. that's and certainly I, not I what resent, I meant. But that, but I'm I'm just saying I you're saying I have fewer barriers. And and you, what I'm saying you is absolutely I do. Are, I, I mean, there's there's no world in which you you have. Fewer, you don't have fewer barriers to voting than some impoverished, uh, I don't know, single black mother of four. So let also, me, I, 
I will say. Um, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Olivia. Yeah, and so Jeff, I, yes. I, I think the one part to me that is just unnecessarily harder that makes it harder to vote is that now um, Floridians have to re-register for every election cycle. And no, I don't think it's um, intangible to figure out how to register to vote on your own. But I can't tell you how many people knew that I was super into politics during, you know, the last election cycle and came to me and were like, how do I register to vote? I've never voted before, but this is important to me. I really feel like I need to vote this year, but I have no idea like how I'm supposed to do it. Do I do it online? Do I have to go somewhere? And you know, with somebody who has easy access to the internet, maybe not everyone does, but to someone who does, yeah, Google it, figure out how to register to vote, but not everybody has that access. So to make it even harder where you have to go through that process more frequently and you can't, you know, I just, I don't, I think whether there's merit to these laws or not, there's no argument that it does make it more difficult to vote and it puts more obstacles in the way of voting. Um, and I also think that, you know, where we see both the Florida and the Texas law or the Texas bill are looking to, quote unquote, empower partisan poll watchers. And that takes me back to Trump's kind of um, uh, insinuation of using, you know, his Republican loyalists to intimidate Democratic voters. And that's kind of a concern that I have is that this empowerment of partisan poll watchers will be used as like an intimidation tactic. Um, I don't know. I'm not I, I certainly don't think this Florida law is as restrictive as other states, like I said, but I do think it's making it harder to vote. Um, again, I don't think every part of it's like ridiculous, but it is making it harder to vote. And again, I I agree that it's kind of, you know, a solution in search of a problem. If if this election was secure, um, what problem is there that we need to address other than that? We didn't like the results of it. You know, let's let's pull back before we move on to our next story because I I mentioned in the opening. Well, I do want to just jump in with two quick things, but go. You, sure. you say your thing first. Well, no, if you're what I got, I, I wanted to talk more broadly about the Voting Rights Act and uh, oh. John R. Lewis uh, bill, but go ahead. So go ahead. Yeah. So no, I, but I just wanted to to talk uh, briefly on the do do Floridians have to re-register? I mean, am I am I understanding this correct, or is it only you have to re-register when you move? I. Believe you mean in terms of? I believe you have to. Well, re, you always have to re-register when you move, right? Yeah. So, but uh, in terms of the specific registration requirement, I am not sure actually. Because I, I, I would, I, I would agree with Olivia. If if you have to re-register again periodically, I I do think that's um that's unnecessary, and that uh, uh is is something that that makes it more difficult uh for people to vote and could disenfranchise people. So I would I would agree with you with that uh, if if that's the case. Um on on the poll watcher question though, I I do want to push back on this because I think this is something important. Um you know, we've had poll watchers in, you know, numerous states, we have them in Ohio. Um and and the the process, the way it works, this is it's not a, you know, Trump partisan army. Um all poll watchers are sort of signed up by the board of elections. You have to be sponsored by either a candidate committee or a, a party. Uh, you are vetted, you give your credentials to the board of elections, you go through board of election training. Um, and, and there's a, a whole, you know, protocol that you go through, you're officially registered as a poll watcher. Um, so I, I just want to, you know, disabuse anyone of, of the notion that this somehow is just, vigilante poll watchers coming in trying to intimidate voters. Um, there, there are rules about what poll watchers can and can't do. 
um, and and the proper channels that they follow if they see a, an issue. So um, I, I just wanted to, to throw that in there. But go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I, I just want to say that, you know, all of this was possible over the last, what, seven, eight years or so, I guess now, because of that Shelby County versus Holder decision. And to, to give people a little bit of background and reminders, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act basically said that certain districts, certain areas needed to seek pre-approval from the federal government, that's that pre-clearance uh, uh, requirement, for certain changes to election laws and procedures. And then it also specified, well, which jurisdictions? Well, it focused on uh, voting tests, places that had voting tests in place as of November 1964, and also based on 1964 election uh, turnout and other, other results. And what the court said in Shelby County versus Holder, in very simplified terms, is that this data is too old. And regardless of even though Congress reauthorized this, they're working on information that's in, in you know, many cases over half a century old. And so therefore that cannot stand. And if you want this to stand, basically you would need updated data on these on these jurisdictions. And that's exactly what the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act does um, under the pre-Holder, Shelby County versus Holder Voting Rights Act. There were 15 states that had to do this pre-clearance, though, uh, in, I think, six of them, only like certain areas, jurisdictions were covered. Under the formula that's proposed in the Lewis Act, 11 states in their entirety would require pre-clearance, but it's based on, you know, modern data, essentially. And so I guess my question, uh, I think I have a good idea how Olivia stands on this, but Jay, what do you think about, you know, essentially Congress potentially responding to the court's uh, uh, ruling there by saying, okay, you want updated data? Here's updated data. I mean, does that seem reasonable to you? Uh, you know, I, I, it would depend on the specifics of the bill, mm -hmm. right? I have no issues with data collection. I think that's a good a good thing. Um, what data are they collecting, right? How many uh, places impose, you know, poll taxes or literacy tests? Well, it's probably zero. Um, you know, where have there been allegations of, of uh, voter suppression? Okay, well, how do you define that? Um, you know, my concern would be that that uh, you find the data you're looking for. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, and I'm not sure that the next, step I, I i think it makes uh abundant sense to you know look let's let states vote as as they as they choose to do that's that's the way we we set up our constitution and voters in states can elect their own state officials and their own state legislatures and and uh make those choices so i am you know generally as a matter of principle opposed to a whole lot of federal regulation over state elections and and quite honestly, anyone who was concerned about Donald Trump should feel the same way. Um, so yeah, I, I look if they wants if they want to do some sort of study and collect uh, details, I you know more power to them. Um, but I'm not sure what's that's going to show. And if it's a precursor to a, a federal takeover of uh, state voting laws, then uh, I'm against it. Uh, Olivia, I I just think. I agree that there should be, you know, we should, states should have to prove, you know, merit or reason for why they're changing their, their election systems or their voting laws, which I think is essentially what this seeks to do is, is, you know, 
we're not going to change again we're not going to change things to you know provide a solution when there is no problem so um you know i i agree that with the the sense that states should have to prove that there was some kind of issue before they go about changing their election laws to address that issue if it wasn't there why should it apply just to the south though well, it just doesn't apply just to the South. Right. In fact, your, it applied your point, parts your point of would a, be with the new data, it could apply anywhere. And in and fact, everywhere. under the old data, it doesn't just apply to the South. It applies to, I think, uh, there was Alaska and uh, I want to say um, actually certain counties in California, I believe, certain parts of Michigan, uh, certain parts of New York State. So uh, the Voting Rights Act you know, provisions, it wasn't just, well, let's target the South. It was just targeting places not based on geography, right. but based on past, you know, past history history of discrimination but it was primarily the south it was primarily well that's because that's where it happened you know i right. mean it's no like, i know i so you know it's so so yeah but I, i'm sure we'll come back to this uh i think texas is getting ready to pass its law i don't know if they'll do a fox fox and friends exclusive like uh like the santas did exactly abbott will do that i don't know but uh i'm betting i that- know we i know we've run around can i can i throw out one because i did i had this awesome idea yesterday okay uh uh, on, on in regard to the woke corporations uh, that are then boycotting these states, I would say that that if this happens, I would encourage uh, these state legislatures uh, to either amend their bill uh, to ensure that corporate elections uh, also uh, run by the same rules or or, or lack thereof. Um, as uh, actual elections. Wow, Jay so, calling for massive government interference in private business. No, okay, well, well, Mike, here's, uh, here's the yeah, here's here's the thing that I, I'm I'm looking at. Right, I mean, uh, I think if if I would like to vote at the uh, Coca Cola uh, shareholders meeting, I should be able to just drop it off in a Dropbox. Um, if they want to ask, are you actually a shareholder, or or uh, when did you buy your shares? Well, that's none of their business. Uh, we'll let the courts sort that out. Um, uh, likewise, I think, uh, uh, if, um, uh, you know, Coca-Cola can just have, uh, uh, someone go out and collect the ballots and, and bring them to the board meeting. Um, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, much, much more, um. Okay. But let's uh, be clear. What you're saying here is that, uh, you would actually be an, I, mean, I, I think you're being facetious because. I am. I'm calling, I'm calling out corporations on their, their hypocrisy and that they are, they are, uh, denouncing states uh, uh, in their governance for steps that corporations would never in a million years dream of applying to their own government. Well, I, I will just say, I, I will, I, I will just say as a final word on this, that it's interesting to me. It seems like you're, you're kind of not understanding a fundamental difference between the public and the private sector, but that's kind of a Republican sort of thing. I suppose the public sector is different and there should be. No, no, no. Well, exactly. But here's the thing. If, if the, the, the private sector then ought to, uh, Shut uh, up, man. Not, not, really not yeah. yeah. Like, like Mitch McConnell said, just donate money to our campaigns and shut the hell up when it comes to anything we don't like. I mean, I just find that just eye rollingly just ridiculous, but. Anyway, I am sure we will come back to this, but we do need to take just a quick break and then we will come back and talk a little bit about the many COVID vaccine developments in this last week and that in just one minute. So moving on, there were a number of major developments concerning COVID vaccinations this week. Early in the week, President Biden announced the goal of 70 percent of adults having at least one vaccine shot and 60 percent fully vaccinated by the 4th of July. And the administration also announced that they would make a change to the 
weekly state vaccine allocation process. It's still going to be based on population. But now whenever a state declines its weekly allocated doses, those doses will be made available to other states instead of being carried over as had been the practice. And the administration also, maybe most controversially, announced that it was in favor of waiving vaccine companies' intellectual property rights to speed manufacture and distribution of COVID vaccines throughout the world. So there's kind of at least three parts to this. And I thought maybe we could start with that 70% partially vaccinated, 60% fully vaccinated goal. What do you think about that? Does that seem like a a good goal, a realistic goal? Uh, uh, Olivia, you want to start us off? Yeah, I think it's a good goal, but I don't know that it's a realistic goal um, because I was just on the New York Times. I was, you know, looking at their live data tracking and everything. And um, there has been a 38% decrease in doses per day since mid-April when we were at that peak of everyone getting vaccinated. Um, So at that current rate, I think they said it would be like August 20th, um, that 70% of people would be vaccinated, but that's not including, you know, children, people under 16 who are not eligible yet. Um, I think it's a a good goal to have. I just don't see it being realistic because um, the rate of the rate of vaccinations per day is steadily decreasing. So, you know, we're at a 38% decrease now, but that I think that's going to continue to slow. Um, I think the general consensus is that people who were really eager to get a vaccine and who were trusting in the vaccine um, kind of jumped on it right away. And um, I, I just think, you know, we're, the rate of vaccination is going to continue to slow. And I don't think that um, July 4th goal is very realistic. Jay? Well, I, I think, you know, originally, um, this was a supply problem. Uh, it's now a demand problem. Um, and I don't know how you, the, the supply problem seems to be, if you ask any company, the supply problem is always easier to fix than the demand problem, right? Right. Um, it's, always, it's always easier to make more. It's more difficult to get more people to buy your product. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm not sure the, the best way to, to go about that. Now, some of this, uh, again, deals with, you've got kids who who aren't eligible yet but they're expecting the fda to to approve uh uh, kids 12 to 16 you know probably within the next week or so um so that that might change the numbers right a little bit when you're total talking about total population um but i i'm not i'm not sure how you get those folks out there who um you know look if if they haven't gotten it already uh what how how do you convince them um it's it's a sales it's a sales problem not a manufacturing problem and the Biden administration um, is i should point out is also they announced they were allocating uh, a certain amount of money from the the last covid bill to go into kind of promoting that sort of thing and, and more efforts along those lines but right, I, but right. i agree so yeah. i i think that's great and and let's let's uh get it but at, at some point um you know i i don't i don't know uh I mean, we, we just have to see what, what, what the barriers are. Um, uh, and again, this is, this goes to like market research type stuff, right? I mean, why are people not getting the vaccine? Uh, is it because they're still nervous about it? Is it because, well, I just haven't gotten around to it. Is it because, uh, you know, whatever, but, um, so I, I think, I think that's to say it's a realistic goal. I, that's, that's tough to, that's tough to do. It's like a company saying, well, we're going to sell this many products um, 
and and you know we're we're going to increase sales by X percent. Um, but you know this is this is sort of a unique product, right? And you only sell it one time. Well, um, m- maybe not. It, it looks like, but but yeah, I take your point. Right, but, but, I no, will... but what I'm saying, and what I'm saying is, once once you sold once you sold the initial product, uh, selling the boosters is no problem. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I, I guess uh, I, I I certainly hope that that the government can get people, and and not not just the government, but look, uh, you know, plenty of private uh, groups, uh, churches, uh, you know, every you know. Uh, people can encourage those who are, are hesitant uh, or reluctant to to get vaccinated, um, but you know at some point people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I will point out that Joe Biden, at least to this point, has had sort of a, a short but still a history of maybe some people would say even underpromising when it comes to uh, the COVID related issues because he didn't want to get caught into that trap of, you know, again, overpromising and not being able to meet expectations. And so I'm hoping that that would be great if that were the case here too. And maybe that's, I share some of your skepticism about that. I think for all the same reasons, but I, but I hope that uh, we are at that point. I, who doesn't right? well, I guess maybe around 30, 40% of people, but what about that second part, the state vaccine reallocation? Of my sense is that this is this is a pretty straightforward, no brainer sort of thing. I get the sense that that governors from both parties are okay with it because no one really wants to see these weekly doses go to go to waste. Uh, uh, either of you have a problem with that? Nope. That's good. Well, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's great. I mean, you know, we can all agree on that. It's nice. No, to I see mean, that. I, yeah. I, like I said, I you know, if I mean, something like this might be more controversial if we were facing a supply crunch. Yeah. Um, but we're not. Yeah, that's a good point. But I think what is controversial is this intellectual property thing. And to be clear, what this would mean is it would require the. For this to go through, it would require the approval of all of the World Trade Organization members because of their uh, trade, I'll get it right, trade-related aspects of international or intellectual property rights or TRIPS agreement. That's as loud as you call TRIPS, right? Uh, but almost all developing countries are actually for this waiver. And there are actually a number of developed countries who said, well, we might be willing to go along. One country in particular, Germany, has said, I we really don't think that we want to do this at all. And uh, what this would likely do is it would essentially exempt countries from enforcing intellectual property rights for the COVID vaccines, but it wouldn't require that pharmaceutical companies provide their vaccine recipes or manufacturing process details and would also most likely include some form of compensation the companies or could if their processes were duplicated, you know, under this waiver. So before we get into the political or likeliness of the likelihood of this, what do you think is, is the waiver, uh, intellectual property waiver, is that a, a good idea? Uh, Olivia, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about it because I think that, you know, COVID is clearly a global problem and, you know, even if we were to, you know, solve this problem in the United States, um, if if other countries are still dealing with, you know, high rates of COVID, then that impacts our ability to travel and inevitably, you know, the the um, development of variants that could potentially be even more harmful. And, um, you know, we can't really isolate a 
the virus to other countries, ultimately they're going to spread and they're going to reach the United States and it's going to be a U.S. problem all over again. So I think, you know, it's in the best interest of the United States to combat this globally, um, which would mean sharing intellectual property um, if it means helping other countries develop vaccines and, and solve the issue of the pandemic in their countries. However, I do understand that, um, you know, the typical argument that when we share intellectual property, it, it may impact the profitability of um, pharmaceutical companies developing um, quality vaccines. And then that hinders innovation in the future because there's not that um, that incentive for innovation in the future. However, with the COVID vaccine, there's been a lot of public funding. So I don't know that there would be no profitability or no incentive because they've been publicly funded. Um, I don't know. I, I have kind of mixed feelings. I think that morally and, you know, for the good of the future of all countries, the solution is to get people vaccinated and as quickly as possible in all countries. And that might mean sharing um, that might mean sharing our developments. Um, but I, I do see, you know, I understand that there's always going to be that pushback of, um, you know, the profitability of developments that private pharmaceutical companies have made and not wanting to share them and lose the um, potential for, for making money on it. Yeah, that, that is basically my position as well. Jay, what, what do you think? Well, I, I guess first I'd, I'd question the um, rationale behind this, right? If the idea is uh, if, we, if we get rid of the intellectual property protections, uh, more places can uh, make the vaccine. Um, from what I've read, that doesn't seem to be the case, right? It's not just having the uh, secret sauce, so to speak, that allows you to to make the vaccine. Anyone who would want to do this would have to, you know, do a whole lot of other, uh, take a lot, a lot of other ramp up steps, um, uh, you know, hardware kind of steps uh, in order and even having other know-how in order to actually do this. So the idea that this is going to increase the supply, the global supply, I, I just don't think there's a means ends connection there. Um, Second part of this is I'm I'm really troubled. I mean, you know, if I'm if I'm a um, uh, biochemist, uh, medical researcher at uh, Pfizer or Moderna, uh, and I, you know, these these folks, these companies poured in. Uh, I don't even know the numbers. I can't even imagine the numbers, right? Of, of how much millions, billions of dollars research to do this and they can they can rightly say you know we may have uh uh if not saved the world uh done something really really significant here um and then the government turns around and says yeah and we're taking that from you um well but it wouldn't be just to be clear it wouldn't be that it would not be that stark it's not an all or nothing thing and you know it reminds me of what you said about the the uh, John the John R. Lewis Act, you know, well, it would depend on the details, and there are a lot of different ways that that waiver can be written to be more or less potentially, I guess you could say, harmful to these big pharmaceutical companies who are making billions of dollars on this. But there certainly, I would agree with you, are ways that it could be done that it would absolutely have a huge negative effect on future innovation. But I think there are also potentially ways that it could be written that wouldn't that would have a much more limited effect that could be much more balanced but that said my and this is where I'll be kind of cynical is my takeaway is the Biden administration saw this as a an easy decision because 
if you listen to a lot of U.S. allies, other developed countries, no one's really enthusiastic about this exactly. And so my sense is that the general feeling is that this is not going to get unanimous agreement. It's not going to go through. So it's an easy win to just say, yes, we are for this wonderful thing. And dang it, if it only weren't for Germany, we would have this. Well, and if that if that's the case, then I would congratulate them on uh, good diplomacy, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, if like I said, if that's the case, this is just the easy, uh, easy case because we know it's not going to happen, but we can still look like the good guys. Then okay. Um, the other the other issue on this that that troubles me is just the precedent setting part of it, right? Um, that. Uh, the government, or worse yet, uh, other governments uh, can say, look, we'd, we'd like to all agree to strip your companies of the uh, intellectual property uh, that you worked really hard and spent a lot of money to create. Um, that's that's problematic, I think, in terms of future innovation. Uh, it's problematic, particularly in, in terms of, of our global relationship with uh, uh, places like China. Uh, where intellectual property is a a huge issue, so um, that would be my other reason uh, for for opposing this. Just the the precedent setting piece of it. That um, well, if the government the government decides that uh, uh, you know it's in the best interest of any everybody, or if a group of other companies or countries decide that it's in the best interest of of them, and uh, the U.S. government decides to go along, they can just take your stuff. Um, uh, that uh, is inimicable to uh, liberty and innovation. Any any final thoughts on that, Olivia, before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I agree about the precedent setting aspect of it. And there are certain, um, you know, out, outside of pharmaceutical um, products, there are a lot of, you know, I, IP data and, and, you know, in other aspects, weaponry, things like that, defense, that, yes, that's terrifying to think that, um, you know, if another, if enough other countries want, you know, intelligence from the United States, um, you know, the precedent is set that, like, if we decide we want to share it with them, we'll take it from these companies and share it. And that's scary. Um, But I would also think that, you know, the United States, if, you know, not that I think they will, but if they um, agreed to, you know, waive this, um, this limitation on sharing COVID vaccine related IP, I don't think that means that they would agree to share, you know, more potentially dangerous or or hindering to innovation um, intelligence in the future. Like, I don't think that just because they do it this one time means that they would do it in the future. But I do understand that the precedent can be kind of a scary thing to think about. All right. We're going to just take one more quick break and then we will come back and talk about Liz Cheney, House Republicans and uh, what's going on with all of that in just one minute. All right. So it looks like it's, well, it's almost certainly just a matter of time until House Republicans remove Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney from her number three leadership position. Uh, Cheney, who was, again, one of the 10 House Republicans to vote in favor of impeaching Trump, was censured for that vote by the Wyoming GOP, but retained her position as House Republican Conference chair. But her continued engagement, uh, I guess you would call it, in response to former former President Trump's continuing lies about the election has essentially sealed her fate. 
And Cheney's almost certain successor is Lee Stefanik, formerly a Paul Ryan establishment Republican, who in recent years has become, uh, I guess what you call a fierce defender of President Trump's and who earned Donald Trump's endorsement for the conference chair position. And it's important to point out that in terms of actual policy positions, Cheney is actually considerably more conservative than Stefanik, which is something that actually the conservative club for growth noted in their opposition to Stefanik replacing Cheney. And honestly, when I consider this, along with the reactions of the Republican base to really anyone who dared to challenge Donald Trump, there was uh, Mitt Romney being booed at the Utah Republican Convention and just yesterday, Ohio Republicans censuring Representative Anthony Gonzalez. It, it seems to me that being a Republican, at least in the House, in good standing in 2021, has a lot less to do with being a conservative than it has to do with standing with Donald Trump. Uh, what do you think about that, Jay? Yeah, I'm I'm afraid you're right uh, on those those cases. And it it uh, troubles me to no end because Liz Cheney is a a pretty rock solid conservative um uh as as was her her father as was her as her was her mother um uh you know i so that that uh i think is a problem uh anthony gonzalez i think has has served well served honorably uh the state of ohio um so i i it, it bothers me uh a great deal that um republicans are throwing out conservative ideology in favor of a cult of personality um that that shouldn't be what the party is about uh it should be about principle not about any particular person um that said i think we should also put this in context that this is a leadership fight um and and that's leadership fights in, in my experience are are, are kind of weird right it's not it's not really a a referendum on the future of the party. It is an internal power structure struggle uh, over over who's in charge of, in this case, the minority uh, party. So, um, I, I, you know, I don't, uh, I I don't want to read too much into it, right? I think it's 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 bad that this is happening. Um, the other piece of this, to me, is uh, Liz Cheney probably would have been better off just ignoring. Donald Trump um, throughout this. Uh, she didn't. I think that was a, you know, she had a strategic decision to make. And and I think it, it didn't play out for, at least not in the short term. It may in the long term. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I, I think that's just, you know, that's that's part of the way leadership fights go. Um, you know, she does. She's not running for office in, in her district. It's not uh, running nationally, it is running amongst the um, uh, caucus uh, who chooses leadership. And if if she doesn't have the votes, she doesn't have the votes. Now, the weird thing, of course, is she did have the votes just two months ago, three months ago. Um, and and uh, what changed was was more Donald Trump involvement. Um, and Kevin McCarthy, my the sense that I've I've gotten from again from what I've read is. Uh, he just doesn't want the headache, right, of of having uh, someone who is uh, anti-Trump or perceived anti-Trump or is going to say stuff that's going to 
kind of ruffle rough you know uh ruffle feathers as as we're trying to all pull in the same direction right. so Ch- um, Ch- cheney's so basically mccarthy's saying to cheney it's like uh well i we don't want you telling the truth about the president's uh, the former president's lies because it's really inconvenient for us essentially yeah, yeah. okay well i mean yeah, you put well, it you put it a more i mean look it's i, I think i think maybe maybe the way he would put it is look can't we talk about something yeah else? sure I'll, I'll <laughs> you know? Olivia, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think um, I I definitely agree that there's like a, you know, a cult like loyalty among um, Trump's base. Uh, You know, even though he's out of office now, there's still that cult loyalty um, in the Republican Republican Party among Republican voters. Um, But I think from like a politician standpoint, this is more about... um, keeping the Republican narrative homogenous. And um, the Republican Party has found um, a lot of success in Trump and in their, you know, in in Fox News consistently upholding what Trump has to say. And, um, you know, Republicans kind of refusing to um, to conflict with Trump. And there's kind of this, you know, within this loyalty, not only among his uh, his base and also, you know, politicians that worked with him or under him or in the Republican Party. Um, Liz Cheney is a problem because she's, you know, divisive of her own party and the Republican Party's success comes from um, all kind of repeating the same messaging, even if it's not true, you know, whatever appeals to the base, um, we're just going to kind of take that narrative and run with it. And, um I think a lot of, you know, the Republican Party knows that a lot of their success is in not challenging Donald Trump um, because they found that he has this loyalty to him that we've really never seen before with the president. And so it kind of has become the party of Trump because they found success in that. And, um, you know, having someone like Cheney contradicting that narrative um you know they don't really have room for that divisiveness from a strategy standpoint their goal is to um you know to push this narrative that that voters want to hear and liz cheney's not doing that so she's a problem you know and i i look at i mean i i think stefanik she's obviously a smart very smart very ambitious person you know she started off as a paul ryan sort of like i said paul ryan that literally worked worked with him uh, and shifted when she saw, you know, where, where the money, literally where the money was. You take a look at, for instance, Josh Hawley's fundraising totals or Marjorie Taylor's Green or Jim Jordan or any of these people who seem to all of a sudden become very radicalized. It, it seems to be much more about revving up the donor base, particularly than any sort of stand on principle, which is, which is, I think, Jay, you know, goes to your point a little bit, which is something I think we all find very disappointing. Yeah. 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 So, but, I, but see, to me, you know, you say you don't see this as being, I mean, you don't want to read too much into this and I get that, but it seems to me as long as that's where the money is, well, then you're going to see more and more people do that. And when trying to make sense of people like, you know, like say a, a, a Jim Jordan or, or Josh Hawley, or again, you know, at least Stefanik, well, it, more and more people are doing this and it's successful. I think we'll, we'll learn more after 20 22 certainly but if we see a number of these people do very well that's only going to accelerate this sort of thing and and certainly the further we get from january 6th the easier it is to you know to to do this sort of thing i would think what what do you think well i think the further we get from january 6th also the the easier it is uh 
to to start focusing on other issues that unite Republicans uh, that aren't Donald Trump. Um, so, I, I mean, I think a lot of Republicans can say, I mean, like like I do. Uh, look, I, I think Donald Trump um, uh, said a lot of crazy stuff. I think he's lying about the election, uh, whether uh, again, I'm still on the, the the point of I don't know whether he's consciously lying or if he's just really believes that he won by a landslide. Um, uh, but but re- regardless, uh, all these, you know, you you've had uh, you've had this Trump dominating the the world for for this long world of Republican politics uh, for this long, and uh, a lot of folks think he was treated unfairly in a lot of cases, and you can believe both at the same time. Um, so I, I think, uh, Olivia is exactly right that it's, it, it's part of this is just trying to, is messaging, right? Let's all be on the same page. We don't want to have the vision because, because look, the other thing, if I'm Kevin McCarthy, uh, I realized that there is almost no story that the press loves to report more than Republican civil war. <laughs> um, right. And, and they've been reporting that story for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and it's one of their perennial favorites. Uh, so if I'm getting ready to, uh, you know, lead the caucus, uh, and we have got a shot to take the house back, uh, I don't want the distraction. I don't want the, the animosity. I don't want that, that, that story taking the oxygen out of the room. Um, and, and you could point to sort of as, you know, I was thinking sort of a counterfactual, right? Say it's, uh, 2000. And, um, you know, the Democrats are, are getting to run. Let's let's say let's say there was a Democrat back in the day who said, I find Bill Clinton to be absolutely detestable. I think he has credibly been accused of, of rape and sexual assault. Uh, even if not that, he certainly acted in a manner that was unbecoming of the presidency. Uh, and I think uh, he should have been impeached. Uh, now, no Democrat said that, of course. Um, but assuming they did, would, would the Democrats have kept that person in leadership uh, running in, into 2000? Uh, and the answer is no, for exactly the same reason, is, is that you don't want that. You want everybody pulling in the same direction. Yeah, and I think a number of people on the right have, well, I think more, I, I would say, respectable in my sense of it. That would be you, Jay. People on the right essentially made that argument that, hey, Liz Cheney, Good, good on her for having the courage of her convictions and and being willing to continually call out President Trump's lie, con- continuing lies, but that comes at a that comes at a cost. And the point of being in the leadership is to focus on well winning a majority. And anything that tr- detracts from that is something you shouldn't be doing as a leader, basically. And that seems to me exactly. to be your argument. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we have gone a little bit long, but even so, before we end today's show, I, I said to both Jay and, and Olivia that we haven't done recommendations in a while. And every week I say, we're going to do recommendations and it never happens. But this week we are going to do recommendations because I have two things that I want to, well, I have mixed emotions about this because I love both of them, but they're both from a source that I just utterly loathe and uh, they're both from apple plus and i have just issues with apple jay you know me i'm a contrarian i've been one for forever and so the idea that i could recommend something from you know one of the largest corporations on earth that bills itself as being very you know counterculture that always just 
sticks in my craw and their whole their whole walled garden of appleness and you can't take apart our things and it's, anyway I have issues with Apple I'll admit it but they do put out some pretty good shows and lately we have I just been binging uh, uh, two of them for all mankind which is sort of this alternate history of the space race where the Russians get into space or get to the moon first and it's uh, just really compelling and then super compelling for an entirely different reason uh i was i was basically almost forced to watch this by a friend ted lasso is uh, this the most warm funny wonderful thing and it's just on days when i'm feeling awful i can we can watch an episode and all of a sudden life feels a little bit better and that's a really precious sort of thing so those are my two recommendations uh, for all mankind and ted lasso both worth even if you don't like apple like me worth getting the apple plus app on whatever streaming device you use to watch so uh olivia why don't you go next yeah i okay so i used to be like obsessed with watching actually like political shows but lately i've been trying to like take a break like a mental break and just watch things that aren't political at all and i found two shows one's called sharp objects and one is called the undoing on hbo max and i watched both series twice now because i watched them by myself and then like made my mom watch them or made my boyfriend watch them and oh my gosh they're both so good if you like like a murder mystery but with a lot of drama built in and like plot twist that just will have you like at the edge of your seat oh my gosh they were both so so good so they're both hbo max but hbo max has amazing shows i highly recommend okay jay what about you well, actually, yeah, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna go the highbrow route here. <laughs> you you normally you you raise uh, you raise our cultural level the, the on higher the show. brow route. <laughs> I guess it's still it's still popular history, right? It's not like you know, but um, uh, I just started uh, David McCulloch's uh, The Pioneers, um, which is uh, something important to, to you and me, Mike, uh, because it's about the settlement of the Ohio Territory, um, and it's it's uh, fascinating and it. Uh, deals a lot with and i think this this is so important these days uh, uh a narrative that that runs contrary to the whole 1619 nonsense and and uh you know the discussion the, the power of the northwest ordinance which uh, prohibited slavery in the northwest territory and the people who came uh, then to ohio and a starting settlement originally in marietta which was ohio's first capital uh down on the river so um Anyway, I, I highly recommend uh, that. Again, I'm only, uh, you know, partway into it. Um, but there's also all kinds of fun stuff about the, the Aaron Burr conspiracy, which a lot of these events uh, took place uh, in the Marietta area. Um, and uh, so uh, right. that's fun. And my other uh, recommendation, and I don't know if this is available yet, but I'll send it to Mike and we can post it somewhere. Uh, I attended the uh, Ohio Federal Society um, uh, annual convention yesterday, uh, which was actually live and in person. And our keynote speaker was uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and she is a remarkable woman. Uh, and she spoke about uh, wokeness and the problems uh, thereof uh, in a really powerful uh, a speech where she and, and many members of the audience were, were crying at, at, at the end. Um, wow. And, and for perspective, I mean, Judge Brown is, is a, a older African-American woman. Um, she was kind of been on the, the Supreme court shortlist for a number of times, but, but never quite made it. Um, but 
yeah, it was, it was, it was very powerful. And, uh, I will, I, I'm sure the link will be up shortly and I'll get that to Mike and we can put it somewhere where everybody can get it. Great. If, if it's not in time for the show notes, which it probably won't, I will, I will make sure to post it on our, uh, social media, our Facebook and our yeah. Twitter. And, yeah. you know, speaking of wokeness, while we're, we're out of time for this episode. We're actually, it's actually a topic we're going to discuss in the bonus show. Uh, James Carville made some, uh, uh, his usual Carvel-esque sort of remarks about wokeness in the Democratic Party, and it caused a whole bunch of reactions. So that's one of the things we're going to get into. We're also going to talk about Facebook's uh, decision to, well, kind of non-decision, their whole the whole board and the decision about Donald Trump's account. We'll get into that and Donald Trump's new um, web presence, I guess you could call it, and and maybe even the recall or the likely recall of the uh, the. California Governor Newsom, it looks like that is going to be happening and what that might entail. It was a wild ride in 2003, the last time a California governor was recalled. That ended up with Arnold Schwarzenegger being governor. And so we'll get into that probably as well. And if you are a Patreon supporter, that will be uh, available to you on Wednesday morning. And if you're not, you can just go over to patreon.com slash politics guys and get, get all set up with that. And again, if you are would like to get all that, but you're just not in a position financially to be able to support the show. Email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen. And something that everyone can do that really does matter, I know I say this every week, but it matters every week, is if you haven't subscribed to the show, please do leave ratings and reviews. And especially if you could share episodes on social media, that really helps to get the word out. And if you want to get a word into us, you can do that from mail at politicsguys.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find the links in the show notes. Special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Susnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.